honestly, Charlotte Airport's grown on me. We could talk a bunch about that, but I, I think it's, uh, I think it's a pretty okay airport actually. I think people give it a hard time for no good reason. Well, we have good reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with hosts Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 393 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm joined this week by Seth Miller and Hello. special special guest Michael Traeger of Travel Zork, um, who's also running a luxury travel advisory group now. Thanks for coming to the show, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. having me. It's good to be, have you back. I'm trying to remember the last time we had John. I think it's it was been a while. You were still in London, so that's a long time ago. Yeah, it might have been talking about going to Vegas during. COVID. Yep, that's what it was. Or we talked that, to yeah. him. Yeah, okay. it's so it's so nice. It's so nice once again to be traveling and not feeling like I'm going to die after the trip. So I mean, it's. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the test positivity rates lately? I'm just going to put that out there. Maybe not so much with the not dying. <laughs> well, maybe not the. But the getting sick doesn't bother me as much as the dying. The dying that's really right. bothers. Okay. So, but I reasonable standards. <laughs> yep. That's uh, and back then it was pre-vax vaccine, so yes. you really did, you really did have a lot more fear. I mean, legitimate or not legitimate or irrational yeah. or rational. There, there, it was a much different mindset. And I try to remind myself of that. How lucky we are all the time now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael, I mean, the reason we really wanted to have you on the show was you recently took a trip uh, to Vietnam. And that trip uh, was kind of a last minute trip. So wh- why was it last minute? I think some things got uh, thrown or- thrown around your way uh, and made you have to plan this thing last second. Yeah. Well, we were trying to find a way to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. And I'm not that old. It's just that I got married at 14. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> or like just, Alabama? Yeah. I thought you grew up in the north. In the north, yeah. Well, it was just just for the marriage, uh, okay. just for the wedding. So, so we decided to do something like really simple, like an Alaska cruise. We'd never done an Alaska cruise before. I'm really into uh, Cunard and the Queen ships, the Queen Mary. I was actually on the Queen Mary in February with my father and stepmother, who just had their 40th wedding anniversary, and that was actually an interesting trip, also because that was more of like a COVID cruise. So, as a travel advisor, uh, Kennard had offered me because I booked a bunch of trips, a free, a free cruise because I had done all their certifications. So I was like, Oh, this is awesome. They're offering us a free Alaska cruise. And Ellen was like, you know what? This just sounds like a great anniversary trip. So we said, okay. And I only had 20 cabins for advisors. So we did it. We signed up for our our shore excursions. We actually paid money to upgrade the cabin. It was all set. And then um, about a month before I get an email from Kennard saying you're canceled. <laughs> and I was like, "What?" And it wasn't because the cruise isn't going, but it is go. It was because there were staffing issues with Canard, uh-huh. and they can. I guess they booked the ship close to capacity, figuring these Alaska cruises would be, you know, pretty close to capacity, and they don't have the staff for it. So I guess it is sort of COVID related. So since they didn't have the staff for it, they cut all the travel advisors who were on the cruise. And I guess they cut other people, depending on the date that you booked the cruise, to get it down to a capacity level where they could provide the level of service based on the staffing. Is Heathrow Hmm. Airport Management running Cunard Cruise Lines with passenger caps? (laughs) (laughs) Last last minute passenger caps. It's a Heathrow special. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I was just so 
blown away by by being canceled on this on this cruise because the cruise wasn't really canceled but there was nothing i could there was nothing i could really do about it so we needed to come up with a plan b and i started searching around for plan b options and i had seen some uh promotional airfares to vietnam which looked pretty good i think spencer did a you know his fare alerts with like fare deals or something i think i saw something at some point a couple of weeks earlier about hanoi deals mm-hmm. and then i was poking around with four seasons and four seasons happened to have a really good promotion in hoi an at their beach resort and it turned out that vietnam a hundred percent opened on or about may 15th so after may 15th you could go to vietnam no vaccination certificates, no testing, no anything, just 100% open. Nice. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me, the Vietnam, like, reopening in that sense. It was one of the first countries to sort of reopen and then had to quickly lock back down again. Um, obviously, that was earlier in the vaccine cycle, if there were even vaccines out at all. It was uh, at some point last year, early last year, I think they tried it. Uh, so it's interesting to me. In the back of my mind, I think, you know, Stephen and Foz and I have talked a lot about the risk of things changing and like, what do you do if you get all the way to the other side of the world and either you're stuck there or in your sudden quarantine or something like that. But um, that those risks obviously didn't, didn't turn out to be an issue for you, but I just compared to the earlier openings of European destinations and the chaos there, you know, from our other conversations, it sounds like you had a much easier and more chill version of vacation. Yeah, it was, you know, I was I was a little bit nervous. So one of the I was just a little bit nervous about logistics in general. And of course, you know, this was going back to Asia. We hadn't done a vacation like this in a while. And also having, you know, now COVID makes me think so much about like, okay, what if I get sick when I'm away and travel insurance? So we finally broke down and bought a really good yearly travel insurance policy before this trip. And what I was most concerned about was the medical portion you know, the medical evacuation and all that. And I did that as a yearly policy, which I had been putting off forever, but I finally decided that it made sense to do that. So that was one of the changes from the way that I, you know, we usually travel that I really wanted to make sure that we had really good travel insurance. The other thing we did is even though the trip was two weeks, we did hand baggage only, Mm -hmm. which we usually don't do for long trips, but I decided with numerous connections and a long trip, uh, setting aside insurance, which I don't, you know, insurance just helps you with money when your bags get lost. I wanted to get on our trip and have our stuff with us. (laughs) I didn't want potentially to have to wait a couple of days to get our bags or spend the beginning of my trip going shopping. Yes, it's funny because a lot of people say, oh, I don't care. I've got insurance. I said, yeah, but do you want to start this great trip like shopping for stuff? (laughs) I mean, it's not enjoyable. me tell you about perhaps having your bags lost on your way to Tunis and being with a five foot, 11 inch tall woman. Not, the shopping options are limited. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's Actually, the, it, turns out there's a, it turns out there's a Benetton that we missed. So she could have gotten much more normal stuff, but shopping the souk with my very tall wife was a, quite an ex- adventure. Yeah. And also it's a similar thing in Vietnam. Like I'm not the smallest yeah. guy in the world. I could, I could go for losing a good 20 pounds. And like when we would go shopping and some of the, you know, and some of the Vietnamese women, this is horrible, but they would say they'd rub my tummy and go Buddha belly. I go, <laughs> I, I <know. laughs> 
20 percent discount for good luck thanks uh, well <laughs> well it was the best negotiation we did in hoi an is when we're buying because everybody buys clothes there's a great place to buy clothing and ellen bought a yeah. bunch of dresses and things like that and i went to get shirts and ellen is much better at negotiating and she starts negotiating with the woman and in a very nice way the woman said he's not the smallest guy we use a lot of cotton for those shirts <laughs> 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 So we're not going to, you know, it's like, it's, you know, if he was, if he was like 135 pounds, 5'10", okay, but you know what? He needs a lot of fabric and he chose a nice fabric. So we're not going to really cut the price that much for you. That's hysterical. I, I was in, yeah, they are, they are known for uh, custom clothing there, the tailors. I just remember with a group of friends, we went, a bunch of us went to one of our friend's weddings in Bangkok and I went and got shirts made. And then like the other people showed up later that day. I was like, oh, I just need to run back to the tailor. Do you want to come with me? And they're like, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. There was one shirt, one that I wanted that they didn't have enough material to make a shirt for me. And like one of the other guys, like even short sleeves is like, no, sorry, not enough. And then like one of my other friends like, what if I get like a pair of shorts out of it? And they're like, no, sorry, not enough. And then a very thin woman who was traveling with us was like, can I get a tank top? He's like, oh yeah, we got plenty for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was sort of the, you know, that was, it was, it was really, uh, it was funny. And we had... I mean, this trip was one of the best trips we've ever taken because we got so many interesting elements of like the bougie stuff and the local stuff and had so many bizarre interactions. Like when we were going for our fitting in Hoi An for clothing, this one dude was there getting a really nice suit. And then he saw me like getting this crazy jacket I was having made. And he's like, Las Vegas. And he turns out to be Chinese from Singapore and was with this other young girl from Vietnam. And I'm like, oh, what are you in town? He's like, I'm here for poker tournament at the Hoi An Casino. I'm like, what? Hoi An Casino? I don't even know what that is. Is there, there's a big new casino like near here. So he like told us about it. And then we wound up that night at this crazy casino called Hoyana, which is basically about 15 minutes from Hoi An, where they have built this gigantic Macau style beach resort casino that opened literally right before COVID. And it was like work walking into another world. So there were so many interesting things that happened not all, you know that that happened on this trip that it was just, just fascinating <laughs> so so tell us about getting there so how did you you chose this this you got some found some good airfare um, and you started in JFK or did you start in Charlotte or what did you, yes. what did you do? We started at JFK. So I found a very good one world airfare, uh, which came to just above, uh, $2,000 to Hanoi from JFK. Mm-hmm. And most of the long segments were on, uh, JAL business class. So it was JFK to San Francisco on the, uh, flagship business product on American Airlines. And that we upgraded the business to the first because I had never done the first class on the A321T before. And then it was San Francisco, uh, San Francisco to Narita, and then uh, Tokyo to uh, Hanoi. Oh, nice. Yeah. And um, we did the, since we started at JFK really, really early in the morning, we decided to fly into JFK the night, the day before, and we stayed at the TWA hotel which I'd never done before. So that was sort of a really nice start to the trip. So so we should get your opinion then, because we've talked to, at length about the JFK TWA Hotel, and uh, we think it's a little overrated. What are your thoughts? Ooh. Uh, well, the experience of getting there I thought was great. 
I yep. thought arriving on American Airlines, you'll have to correct. I forget what the terminals are at JFK. T8 is, is, is American. Okay. So we arrived on American and I remembered just as we were leaving the terminal, we were passing the flagship first lounge. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, let's just go in and get a glass of champagne because we're in no rush to get to the TWA hotel. And my wife always has to go to the bathroom anyway. So we, <laughs> so we've never done that before. So we went into flagship first, like after a flight, like we're not the kind of people to go to a lounge and stay in the airport. We usually like want out of the airport as quickly as possible. So we actually went up to Flagship First Lounge, which I still have access to because I'm One World Emerald from British Airways Executive Club, which has been Mm -hmm. extended until August of 2023. So that was really nice. And then I I don't think I've ever taken AirTrain or is it AirTran before? AirTran, yeah. Yeah, at JFK. I thought that was cool. I thought it was really cool. It was. I mean, Sorry. it's cool. It's cool. It was running. Uh, okay, well, well, you got lucky. You see, you see. Here's the thing. Maybe I just had like the great passenger experience day. Like maybe it wasn't <laughs> supposed to work on this, right? We get off our flight from Charlotte. Uh, we go up. We drink some champagne. We do some emails. We leave. We take this air train, which is beautiful. We get to the TWA terminal. And uh, I still call it the TWA terminal. I can't help it. And what I liked so much is as you're walking, it starts to play the TWA music outside near those Mm -hmm. fountains they did. So like getting you in the mood. So I thought that was super nifty. And then we checked in, you know, then we checked in at the TWA hotel. And of course I was like, the first thing that struck me because I used to fly out of that terminal so often on TWA, I'm like, this is so small. (laughs) Like this check-in area is so small. So all of the TWA check-in, say you're in the center, was on the right, where that like whole that food court stuff is yeah. now. Okay, all of that was the check-in. To the left, where you check in for the hotel, that was like maybe if another charter airline was there or something else. But you like never went to the left. You always went to the right. <laughs> and I just remember that so well. But we checked in. We got a room with a pretty nice, a pretty nice view. Uh, and it was not inexpensive. I can't remember off the top of my head what it cost, but it was more expensive than... I mean, it wasn't an inexpensive stay, but I I thought the rooms were like tiny but functional. There were certain elements of the rooms that I thought were really cool. Like I liked the glassware that they had in the rooms and stuff. I was sort of impressed. I'm like, wow, they've got really nice glassware. And uh, but like really like little things. But it didn't. I mean, my bias is so huge because I was such a big and still am such a big TWA fan. So I was just tickled pink being there and like thinking about like my memories of flying on TWA and checking in and going to the ambassador club there and all of that, that, that probably sort of made my opinion a little bit better than most. Mm -hmm. We did have dinner that night at the Paris cafe, I think it's called, which Now, that is on the side that was opposite the Ambassador Club side. And the other side, I think they have it, they call it the London Cafe. That was a private event. And I just remember that side so well because that's where the Ambassador Club was. And we had, and dinner was fine, but it was overpriced and just fine. Like nothing, but the windows were beautiful. You know, it was nice being there. I think that's the kind of the key like that we talk about is like everything's fine. Like there's nothing and the aviation angle, the, the, our, our aviation geek kind of takes over when we're there and we're like, Oh, this is really cool. There's a Connie outside. It's got the TWA history here. Um, but like for the price that you're paying for the room for what's essentially an airport hotel, um, on property, right? Uh, you're kind of, it's kind of like, wow, I, I paid a lot for uh, a pretty, pretty standard room. <laughs> So that's kind of our feeling, I think. Yeah, and also, like, I thought the Connie was really cool, but I think the fact that it's not air-conditioned... Yeah, it's not makes great during the summer. <laughs> it absolutely pointless. I'm sorry, but, you know, I don't really want to sit 
drinking expensive cocktails and sweating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can, well, I mean, I can go to Vietnam for that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they aren't yeah. that expensive. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. you gotta get somebody to hook an APU up to that county. <laughs> yeah. yeah it just surprised me that somebody didn't think of that. Like this is not a posh experience at all. You know, it is just way too, like we walked in and walked out. We are like, Oh, yeah. this is really cool. I mean, yeah, I, I think their ADR is really, really high. The other thing that I noticed is they, they sell a lot of day rooms. Yeah. Like, uh, which is sort of, which is sort of interesting, but the day rooms are not inexpensive at all. So, well, and, and then you still have to pay, even if you're a guest, you have to pay to use the pool. Um, if you wanted to go up on the pool level, um, which I think is a little, I don't know, kind of ridiculous, honestly, if you're a guest there and, Paying to paying to use the the pool an amenity that is part of the hotel property. So I think it's even worse than that. You paying for using like two hours of the pool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't get it for the full day. It's yeah, exactly. I mentioned um, that to my wife. Like, do you want to go to the pool before dinner or something? I said she's like, we're really going to pay fifty dollars to go sit in a pool in a hotel where we're spending right north of a two hundred fifty dollars for the night. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so then you, you flew on American the next day on the Transcon. Uh, what did you make of the F service on, on that flight? Uh, the flight was very early in the morning and we did uh, the air, JFK was super duper crowded, but we used flagship, the flagship first check-in mm-hmm. that they have, which I always forget about. And Ellen doesn't have TSA pre-check. She's in renewal. Uh, long story, but I have TSA pre-check. So that's sort of cool where they walk you to the front of the security line from the flagship first check-in and there was nobody uh, there was nobody there. And that was, that was great. Uh, we did flagship first dining just because we could, we didn't really want to because the flight was like six fifteen in the morning and that was sort of nifty. I mean, it was nice. Uh, I thought the service was very decent on board. Uh, the, the one flight attendant who was handling first was pretty good. I mean, the food wasn't interesting. Was if I remember the food was not that interesting. I thought the service was pretty good. I was, amazed that they did not have champagne and then at some point an hour and a half in he found a bottle of champagne so i thought that was sort of interesting uh it's, it's like it was too early for him to look <laughs> uh, well that that could be i'm looking at my my photos yeah so they had some like like spumante you know i'm like but that was not very first class uh but there was hot towel service there was a first course of fruit which was just fine nothing interesting and then i had a I had some eggs with like lentils and it was fine. It was nothing that interesting, you know, but I, I thought the product was great. I didn't, you know, I'm sorry. I failed the AV geek course. I didn't realize that first was one, one on mm. that. Pl- like I didn't realize business was two, two. And then first was one, one. Uh, so that's sort of cool. We both were in row one. I like that idea. Yeah. Did, did, uh, so I mean, you, you talk about going, you know, flagship first and stuff. Did, was it full? I mean, cause we, you know, we've talked about it on the show. Like it doesn't seem like American really sells a lot of first, uh, uh and it's, it's basically non-rev first class. So it was, I would say it was about half full okay. and our upgrades cleared about three days in advance. Oh, wow. Okay. They did have, by the way, they did have other snacks. They did have like a little cheese board <laughs> in the middle of the flight, which I got, which was nice. So I had like some champagne and cheese board and an espresso, which was great. I mean, which was so nice for like the start of this trip. So that was, uh, and they had the hot cookie. Uh, so I, it wasn't, <laughs> so I guess, I mean, in the realm of American Airlines, it was pretty darn good. And he was, he was pretty sociable and funny and it was a decent, I mean, overall, I thought it was a decent experience. My first time flying on that Transcon, I always wanted to, so it was good. Was it necessary to upgrade to first? Absolutely not. But 
I mean, we could, so why not? And and then you connect it to JAL. So I I've actually taken the JFK Narita flight on JAL, and in in I was in first. I, I really enjoyed it. What did you think of their business class product? I thought the business class product was excellent. I okay. actually like their business class seats, even though it's a little bit of a staggered door. It's a two three two configuration on the triple seven. I guess it's a triple seven three hundred, and it's it's two three two. But the way the seats are designed. They're really, really comfortable, at least for me and for my body size. Yeah. And uh, I was at the window and Ellen was on the aisle and it worked really, really well on that flight. And the service was absolutely phenomenal. My only complaint was the JAL lounge at in San Francisco was horrible. <laughs> uh, but we didn't search further for other like it didn't matter. Like we just were fine, you know, but it wasn't, you know, there was nothing special about the lounge, but the in-flight service was great. Business class was great. When they, when I had mentioned it was our anniversary, they actually presented us with a model JAL plane at the end of the flight uh, that they wrote happy anniversary and put the flight number and signed from, you know, the flight attendants, which I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I have yeah. it next to me on my desk. So it's really cool. Oh, that's really nice. I mean, I think so on the JAL seats, I think uh, I think I tweeted you about this or maybe Instagram. I can't remember because um, the JAL seats are the ones where they're they're staggered, right? Like they're, <laughs> the aisle seat kind of sits behind the <laughs> window seat. Um, and I flew that on their 787s. And. I think it's because of the way the 787s are set up, but you sit almost, it's almost like the person that's in the aisle is sitting next to you in on the 787, at least in my experience. And so I felt it was a lot less private. Um, and I kept that little privacy shade up the entire time, but it sounds like maybe on the, on the 777s, it's a little more offset. So you don't feel like you're being stared at by someone right next to you the whole time. I'm actually looking at that exact angle and you, you nailed it. It's exactly that way on the triple seven. It is definitely set back, but it worked really nicely. So it is a little bit more private. And of course, if you're traveling with a companion, it's actually sort of nice, you know? So I, you know, I thought, and we both happened to be in the bulkhead row, the second. So you know how they have that super mini business cabin Mm -hmm. and then they have the second cabin. We were in a bulkhead on the second cabin, but I, I thought it was great. I only had, uh, good things to say about the flight, the food and beverage, everything. It was wonderful. The flight attendants. I mean, it, it was a glorious flight. I mean, I, I, oh, except for uh, they have listed. This is one of my tests lately. I'm going to stop testing it. They have listed that they do martinis on the menu. They never really <laughs> do martinis. Well, they put vodka or gin in a glass and they serve it to you. What do you need? I think they put sweet vermouth in with it. <laughs> I was like, and I felt so bad because the flight attendants were like, was the martini okay? And I'm like, uh, can I have glass of Not, really. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but they're so nice and they tried so hard. <laughs> Did they have the fancy glassware for it at least? Uh, you know, I don't know if I have to look to see if I have a, no, they didn't have a proper martini glass either. So uh, they're, you know, Jal is very into stemless glasses now. Yeah. Mm. Less breaking, I bet. I, yeah. There was. It's funny you just mentioned that they didn't have the proper glasses. I, there was a bar here that did martini specials, vodka martini specials. For a while at happy hour pre-covid and i was like yeah can i get the vodka martini but just on the rocks in a lowball glass without any of the vermouth or anything else in a lime and they looked at me it's like i just want a vodka on the rocks with lime but i want to pay the market i want to pay happy hour prices instead what's wrong <laughs> that's did, awesome. they, did they comply absolutely we negotiated it was <laughs> i was successful <laughs> That was great. Uh, but you know what? All of the all of the place settings for the Japanese. So I'm on my way. So like everything is Asian meals, you know, because I'm in this mode of going to Asia. But I've got to tell you the whole bento box thing and all of the little parts of the meal. And I also love that little brick of rice on Jal 
the rice is so good and so perfect in that little brick. So I, I was, I was thrilled by the, uh, by the service. And on the way back, did you switch to Western food? Yes, yes. <laughs> on the way back, You're like God, I've been in Asia for a week. I need like Western style. I want a steak. Just give me a, you know. You nailed it, and I never ordered steak on a plane, and I did, and it was actually really. Good. Yeah, I was one of the few airlines I'll order a steak for yeah. or from. I, but you're right. It was there. And also, I found my newfound love of Campari. I totally forgot about Campari. And Campari and soda is so nice. And the little bottles on Jal are glass bottles. They're glass of Campari. They're so <laughs> cool. So, I mean, and you know, I mean, Seth knows how I'm like all into glassware and little bottles and things like that. So, I mean, I had I had a great flight. You know, then I got into drinking my Campari and soda. And I was like, okay, this is better. <laughs> no martinis, Campari and soda. So then we landed in Tokyo, and I was thrilled to find out we did not have to clear security again for the Hanoi flight. Which oh, that's that's new. Yeah, I, I totally was expecting that we had to clear security. So I'm guessing the flight from San Francisco was treated as a clean flight, mm-hmm. security-wise, uh, because they dumped us in. And then on the way, walking to the Hanoi gate, we pass the Japan Airlines lounges, and it's open, and the first-class side is open also. And that was awesome. So we got to go to the Japan Airlines first class lounge and we did not have an ultra long connection, but actually the Hanoi flight wound up being delayed about 20 minutes, but that was a total shock. I didn't expect to be in a Japan Airlines first class lounge. So that was super fun. And I don't know, I can't remember everything pre COVID, but it was all QR ordering. And it was really good. Uh, they had two cham- they had Laurent Perrier champagne, non-vintage. They also had a really good champagne from the UK uh, that, is is really nif- which was sort of nifty that they had the sparkling Brexit wine. Thank you. Yes, sparkling <laughs> Brexit wine. So uh, it was great, and the QR ordering was awesome. You know, and I got so then I was ordering like tons of stuff because I love like the tobago and the sushi and the bento boxes and the mizu soup, and of course you know my obsession with Japanese toilets. So I, of course, you know, (laughs) (laughs) who doesn't? You're like, I need to use the restroom. I'll be back in a little bit. (laughs) Right. And you know what was so much fun? So this trip was Vegas to Vietnam. Because of the way this trip timed, there was supposed to be a one-week hiatus, but for numerous reasons, we had to get back to Charlotte by before July 4th. So I had been in Vegas right before this trip. I took the red eye home from Vegas. I literally had that day to gather things and do laundry and get packed. And then we left on Friday for this trip. And right before this, when I was in Vegas, I got upgraded to a great suite at Crockford's, which also had one of these great Japanese Toto toilets. (laughs) So I I was like really in this toilet mode. I mean, and there's honestly, there's nothing better than having one of those toilets. And they did such a good job at Crockford's in Vegas. Not only do they have that toilet, but they also have strategically placed the perfect shelf that's just for a mobile phone next to the toilet. <laughs> it's so so when you need to get up from the toilet, you can have a place to put your phone properly. Just so smart. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and so then you had your connection. Uh, when you were were you going straight to Hanoi or were you going to Da Nang or what was the was was the plan then? That we had, we went straight to our connection. Uh, we went to our connection to Hanoi, which was actually on a 787 9 on J- Japan Airlines, and we were staying in Hanoi for four, uh, for four nights. Okay, and and what did you, what did you think? I mean, so I mean, how one, how crowded was Narita, and two, what did you think of Hanoi? So those are kind of separate questions, but I'm, I'm interested in, to, to sing, see how busy it was in, in Narita. Narita was not bad, I mean, on the busy level, like I would put it at like a 
if 10 was like super busy, I put it at like a six. Okay. Now our Hanoi flight uh, was right next to it at gate. It was at gate 66. And then uh, the flight to Bangkok was at gate 67A. So they basically had a Bangkok and Hanoi flight leaving. And I would say the gate area was, it was decently crowded, but it wasn't crazy. Uh, heavy, heavy mask compliance. Well, you're supposed to wear, you're supposed to wear masks. What was strange, I forgot to mention, so, you know, obviously tourists can't really go to Japan right now unless they're on some tours or something. Yeah. So when we landed in Tokyo, they were like, anyone who's making a connection has to stay in their seat. Hmm. And everyone who's not making a connection and getting off, you know, ending in Tokyo can get off first. I thought that was a little bit backwards. It also made for some really anxious people. But, you know, Japan being Japan, everybody complied. Because you know how weird it is for people who have tight connections to be like sitting in their seats. I bet they took the first people out and sent them upstairs or downstairs, whatever, and then switched the doors and let you guys dump into the terminal. You know, Mm, that could be it. Yeah, it was it was interesting, though, but it was extremely organized. And like I said, I was so thrilled being dumped into the terminal. And by the way, the Shops are open. Like we went to duty free. We wandered around duty free. We actually bought a bottle of champagne and duty free to bring with us to Hanoi. So things were pretty operating. Lounges were open. The duty free was open. It hmm. seemed like a pretty normal, you know, passenger experience at the airport. Uh, so that was great. Uh, the 787 flight was awesome to, uh, to Hanoi. We got into Hanoi late. It was about 10 or 1030 at night. And, I would say that even though I knew in the back of my head it was totally unnecessary, we did pay for expedited visa processing. So we did the e-visa, but there's still like a little bit of a lag when you get into Vietnam where they have to like sort of process the final steps of your e-visa. And we paid for all of the expedited processing because part of the reasoning is we're like, okay, we will have been traveling a long time and I don't want to be waiting. That was totally unnecessary. You do not need to pay for that. We were we were through literally in under five minutes. It was like stupid. I mean, like if there would have been a wait, it maybe it would have been a fifteen minute wait. Are they are they now offering basically visa on arrival in Vietnam again, or is it like? Would you recommend people getting their visa before they go? I don't think they're doing visa on arrival. You need to. You're supposed to do your e visa in advance. As for U.S. passports, for U.S. passports, you're supposed to do your visa in advance. But there's something about like a final processing of the visa or like a final step. So you that they do when you arrive, which can supposedly take a little bit of time. I don't think that's really true. I mean, I think you know the people who are advising me, uh, cough, cough, the Four Seasons. I think they wanted to guarantee that Mm. we had the best passenger experience when we arrived because believe it or not, even though we were going to Hanoi first and staying at the JW Marriott in Hanoi, the four seasons was where we were staying most of the time. When I mentioned everything, the four seasons offered to do our e-visa for us, to do fast track for us, to coordinate everything, like really, really impressive. Like they were like, we want to coordinate everything to you. And also like, we'll communicate with the JW Marriott and make sure, you know, a car's there and all of this is taken care of, which is way over, way above and beyond, you know, that I thought, but we, so we, but we did everything like the poshest, nicest way to do it just because I had no idea if there would be weights and it's, we found out that that's not necessary. And on the return trip, there's a little story on that too. So, I mean, I, cause I think Seth, you know, when I came and you and I went to Vietnam together, uh, I actually did the visa by going to the consulate in New York and getting a, I got, I got a multi-entry. Um, and and it was still a problem when I entered uh, Vietnam. Uh, it wasn't a problem. It was just a delay. One, I think I had gained a few pounds between when my flight <laughs> had been taken and when the person looking at it, he didn't think it was me. Um, 
but it took it's a, it did take a while. So I, I just wonder if it's like the way they process visas yeah. in, I, in Vietnam. I, I'm I trying to remember. I did. I think I did like the advanced. V, I think I booked visa on arrival once, and I did the e visa once, and it's two different things. Mm-hmm. And one, I remember what Michael's talking about. Like you have to like drop your passports off in one line, and then they call your number and you go collect them. Mm-hmm. And the other was just get in line and bring your print out to the front. And I think it was the. I think it was. E visa was okay, and visa on arrival was the annoying lines. Gotcha. And they've who the hell? I, mean, I don't know what's open anymore, what any of the rules are anymore. Yep. But um, yeah, there's that is one of the places where there's enough different options that I don't know. It's it would be very easy to pick one and find out you made a choice that took longer than was absolutely <laughs> necessary. And and I think it's like a little overwhelming, Michael. Right? Where you you land in Vietnam in, in the evening. Like I think most of the flights like from the U.S. or from connecting from Tokyo or soul they all land at like 10 p.m or 11 p.m so you kind of land and it is it's busy like outside the airport it's kind of chaotic so i'm sure you're kind of like okay i'm glad we had a car arranged for this because <laughs> it is it's a little it's a little much yeah and and the other thing is like we sort of said to ourselves like we started literally waking up at like 4 30 in the morning at the twa hotel like the day before right and i i just said you know i just can't risk the fact that there would be a hold up for a visa or something and we yeah. would be hanging out because you know at that point you were so done with traveling that you want to get to your you want to get to your hotel yeah, so absolutely. i think my my favorite travel splurge in the world is especially going to a new place and especially after a long day of travel is fancy hotel car pick me up <laughs> seriously it's I you know yeah. i don't splurge much on travel but when we were going in, when we went to asia on our honeymoon a lot of different places we've gone even like uh siem reap or not siem uh the capital uh i'm blanking on the name of now um Phnom Penh, no, where we flew yeah. into like i knew how much the taxi was going to cost i knew that i was being charged double but it was only 20 bucks and i was like yep have someone standing there with a sign with my name on it I don't want to deal. I want. I don't want to have to negotiate. I don't have to haggle. I don't have to fight. I want someone to escort me through the chaos, carry my bags, and put me in an air conditioned van very quickly. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking at the visa now. By the way, I agree. I have a lot of thoughts on that, and that's a, such an interesting thing. I, the vi- the visa we had does say on it electronic visa, so mm-hmm. it was the one where they have to take your passports and do a final step. But just like Seth said, so we got off the plane and someone was there with the sign and he's mm-hmm. like, give me your pass. Well, first of all, he's like, do you have bags? You know, of course he's like, we're going to go to baggage claim. Like we have no bags. Like, oh, that's great. Give me your passports. You know And it's like, <laughs> right. Also that's the other beautiful thing about hand baggage only, even though these airports do decent baggage handling, it is wonderful just to be able to walk off the plane and, and, and get this done. And then yes, we had the wonderful, you know, the wonderful person from the JW Marriott there, you know, who met us. And I think as is common in many Asia cities where they do this kind of thing a lot, the major hotels have a representative that's at the airport that then meets you outside a baggage claim that then brings you to the car with the driver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make sure they, they book the car for you, but they make sure you get in the right car, but they literally just have a guy whose job it is to stand there and greet their incoming guests. Exactly. And then we, a, a crazy staffing situation to me, but sure. Yeah. And then we got in the lovely Mercedes and they had proper, really nice bottles, really nice bottles of water with a little handwritten note with rosemary inside of the bottles of water. You are, you're just, you're spoiled. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. And also the towels they give you when you get in the car, the lemongrass cold towels, towels. <laughs> oh, the cold lemongrass towels. It's just <laughs> it, it was it was really, really nice. And the check in experience. I mean, everything at the I got to say that that JW Marriott is is really well done. I think the hotel's about 10 years old. It's a little bit outside of the city center. 
but it's not that outside of the city. It's at like the next lake up or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's it's where Seth where we went to go get to that, that brewery. Beer, the yeah, brewery yeah. the microbrewery, yeah. yeah. Okay. It is also the hotel where Trump stayed as well as Obama. Makes sense. Because uh, according to – we had a really good dinner uh, in the French restaurant there. Uh, according to them at that property, because of the lakes and the way it's isolated a little bit, the Secret Service really loves dealing with that property, which makes sense because it is sort of slightly isolated, you know, not in the middle of the city. And it seems like the kind of place that would be easy to uh, use. But I was – I mean, everything was great. Hotel was wonderful. Uh, we got there. It was our anniversary. They actually – did that whole flowers on a bed and roses in the big bathtub thing. And this is probably the first time in my life. Ellen took a quick bath and went to bed. And then I got in the bathtub with all the roses and it was <laughs> actually, <laughs> it was really nice. I said, you know, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm in a bathtub with roses after traveling this long, but it was really nice. Though a question about the roses on the bed, it always seems so bizarre to me because it's like, you got to sort of throw them on the floor. <laughs> you know, it's so like yeah, 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 yeah. when they make designs on the bed with, flower petals it's just like well what do i do with this when i get into bed it's so messy so <laughs> i feel like i'm going to offend them if not you know. worry about it because someone's going to come in tomorrow morning and clean the room for you <laughs> yeah no it, it was it was it was really wonderful and yeah. the hotel was wonderful the lounge was wonderful they treated us great uh great stay and we had no problem taking cabs back and forth to the center of the city what is not operating now, you know, they have an app. Oh, I forgot the name of the app. You'll know. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Grab or something. Grab. Grab. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Grab does not work for cars. It'll work for motorbikes. But Did you guys do the motorbike option? Absolutely not. Oh, it's so, <laughs> so much fun. fun. <laughs> uh, Steven, did you do motorbikes with us? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. I remember Jason and I did it a bunch before you got there. I just couldn't remember if we convinced you to do it too. Yeah. You were like, you don't need it. They'll give you a helmet. Don't worry about it. And I was like, okay, and they fine, do. Let's do it. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> No, no, no. It, look, it, it looked great. And it's cool. But also, it was always the two of us. Can you put two on a motorbike? No. No, you get two. You need two phones, but you book two. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what do you bargain. Is it's it street fun. racing? Is it like street racing yeah. then? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Tell them, hey, I'm with her. Let the two guys go at it. It'll be great. <laughs> okay, maybe on the next Although trip. Ellen could try to ride side saddle also. That'd be impressive. <laughs> well, right? This is the thing in, in Vietnam, particularly because of the, the dresses, whatever. Like Most of the women seem to ride side saddle on the back instead of straddling the bike. And that's a whole different level of balance that you got to be practiced in. I don't think I could do it. No, I don't think I could either. That's that is that is a pretty cool idea. Yeah. But anyway, the that part of the app for either the larger vehicle or the regular vehicle, we could not get it to work once. When I spoke to some people about that, what I was told is that during COVID, two of them like about two of the major cab companies went out of business. So there were a lot fewer cab companies. So my guess is that the cabs don't really need the app you know, for, for rides, for business. So they're not doing it, but I tried it at least a dozen times. And each time I tried it, I tried it multiple times and we were not able to call a cab using that app. Because it's funny because lots of people said to me, Oh, just use the grab app for a cab. It's so easy. I'm like, used to be pre COVID. How busy was, I mean, Hanoi was, what did it feel like things were back to, to normal? Cause there for a while, I think, you know, most of the city shut down, most of Vietnam shut down. Yeah, it seemed it seemed pretty back to normal. I, oh, you know, okay. it was except for the fact that you know it's really warm during the day, so people. I think there probably aren't as many people out. Like we were truly there in the warm time of year. You know, this is yeah. a warm time of year, but it it seemed pretty, you know, pretty bustling. And we did a long walking tour, and we wandered around a lot, and it was it was really it was really cool. And we only got scammed once by a taxi driver, but we 
actually were prepared for it. So we <laughs> managed to turn it around on him. Uh, what so. was the what was the scam? Well, it was one day where we finally weren't getting a taxi from like a major hotel like the Metropole or from the JW. And we hailed a taxi on the street. Driver was super chatty, super nice, said we're going to JW Marriott, chatting us up, all that kind of stuff. He had a fake meter. (laughs) Uh, So we knew exactly what the pricing was. The pricing was basically pretty much so between $160,000 and $200,000 dong. That's how much it was for a taxi to JW Marriott from most of the locations in the city center. And as he started to get close to the JW Marriott, he started to like slow down. Like he wanted to not go up the hill to the Port Coucher and wanted to drop us off there. And the meter was like at like (laughs) 500,000. And we were like, no, 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 you need to go up that way to the hotel. You know, like you're not dropping us here in the street. And he finally did. And he drove up to the hotel and then he like kept starting to want to stop, like to leave us. I'm like, no, no, you're going to put us like in the front entrance of the hotel. Cause we figured if we had any problem, we're now in the front entrance of the JW Marriott. And then basically we said to him, that's not the right price. Here's 200,000 dong. Have a great day. I did and that once in Egypt. Yeah. He didn't have a problem. No, but we purposely wanted him in front of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. We wanted him there because if there was a problem, somebody would be there, like one of the doormen or something. And we'd say, hey, this guy just tried to charge us like, you know, 500,000 from this location, you know. So and he was like, literally, he was like in shock. And he was like, "Okay," And we just got out of the car. Like, uh, (laughs) but I got to say, James Bond craft, whatever he had a switch for the beater or whatever he did. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> nice. Super, super. Um, slick. And go ahead. Now I was going to say, did you enjoy Hoi An or Hanoi more? Uh, I would say it's totally different, a totally different thing. I mean, we were really lucky in uh, Hanoi because actually, coincidentally, some of the people on my wife's Asia team at work were going to be in Vietnam and we got to meet up with a bunch of them and went out to a very local dinner. And, you know, it was, it was a cool, it was a cool city, you know, but to me, it was, it was a bustling city. And I, and that was, that was awesome. Whereas uh, Hoi An is like, just a tiny historic city, which is mm. different. And Da Nang, the little bit we saw of it, was also like a really cool, sort of hip, funky nightlife city, which really impressed me. What I liked the most, and this is jumping ahead maybe or maybe not, so we've stayed at the Four Seasons in Bali. We've stayed at the Four Seasons in Langawi. What I liked so much about the Four Seasons in Hoi An is that it was literally 10 to 15 minutes to the center of Hoi An, 30 minutes from Da Nang. But what I liked about it is you had the Posh Bougie Resort, but easy access to, you know, Hoi An and this incredible amount of local dining, great, you know, historical nifty city. You could get to Da Nang if you wanted to. And then you had all these other UNESCO sites within about a two hour ride. And I really liked that because we could do the combination of local stuff and some city stuff and other things, as opposed to feeling like we're more isolated. Like Four Seasons Langawi is really nice, but there ain't a lot going on in Langawi, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and Four Seasons Bali, where it's situated, you know, the, my problem with Bali so much was the traffic was so bad everywhere. You know, mm. it just was like constant traffic. So I, what I loved about this is that we didn't, and we've never done this before, we did not eat dinner except the final night when we did a special like anniversary dinner on the beach. We did not eat dinner one night at Four Seasons. And we were there for eight days. Every single night was a different local dining experience in Hoi An. And I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Did you get to say, I mean, you're close to, you know, Da Nang. Did you go to Hue as well? Or did y'all stay further south? 
we spent a huge day touring and we went to Hue and that was awesome. And a bunch of the UNESCO sites, which I can't remember all the names of, but we went to Hue and I was that we literally did a 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. kind of tour day. And that that was super awesome, except Cause, for the heat. Because Hue is the, the kind of the historic capital right of of vietnam is that correct or like where the where the the royal seat was i guess for a while right as far as i know and that was great and we we had a wonderful tour guide like we we went full on that day like great tour guide great like we really wanted to do a really intense uh really intense day and there were a few things that we didn't get to that ellen wanted to get to uh i don't remember exactly what they were but a, a strange thing happened where we Ellen does all the research for food and beverage places, like local places. I do like the bougie places. So if you want to know like the best French restaurant in Vietnam, I'm your guy. If you want to know <laughs> the best local place to get pho, Ellen's your person. <laughs> so, uh, and, which is great. So it's extremely complimentary if you think about it. And yeah. uh, we ran into a wonderful uh, couple from Melbourne at a roof bar and they have been coming to Hoi An forever and they're teachers and they were on teacher break and they were telling, you know, we were just chatting and all of that kind of stuff. So it turns out about an hour outside of Hoi An, they've been supporting this, this orphanage, which, uh, which is real big on educating students and keeping, keeping kids in Vietnam. So even if they've been abandoned by their family or there's a family problem, they want to support them with education so that they can be successful as opposed to like, you know, them being adopted or moving outside of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. And they were telling us this interesting story. And then the, and then the next day they said to us, would you like to come with us to the orphanage? You're doing a lunch, you know, and we've been supporting them. We thought you would find it interesting. And we're like, yeah, of course. So we were going to do other stuff and we went with them and we're totally taken aback by the stuff that they're doing there and ellen and i never you know are very interested in like charitable kind of giving experiences but we never really seek those things out because we never know like what's legitimate what's not legitimate what's like set up for tourists and not set up for tourists and this was a really amazing experience and we got to learn about them and this other family that happened to be american that were big supporters that were living in da nang and Sadly, the husband went back to the United States during COVID to visit his family and got COVID and died. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah, I know. I think about it, like getting you get COVID, you know, which we're probably not so surprised about. But it was sort of interesting because they had their picture up and they were a Jewish couple and he had a little bit older than us and had done he had done two tours in Vietnam and they had come back years later, you know, and enjoying and they're supporting this orphanage. And it was very interesting. And then we wound up, you know, learning more about it and becoming friends with these people from Melbourne. And now we've recently done a donation, you know, to help them buy more bikes to have them help kids get to school and stuff like that. So it's, it's, this was just truly one of those vacations where we never knew where it would lead us. Right. Mm. (laughs) And that, and that was amazing. And also like meeting local people, understanding the way their school is and how the education system works in Vietnam. It was really, really interesting. So, I mean, what a, what a crazy special trip and just two people we happened to run into at a rooftop bar in Hoi An. <laughs> or, or you got scammed twice in Vietnam, and hey, why, why not? Uh, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, sure, no. I'm sure it's legit and a good, a good cause. It just it, There's like enough of the things you said that like at each turn, I'd be like, red flag, this is bullshit, red flag, what's going on here? And then you get there, and you're like, 
probably maybe legitimate, but sure. <laughs> well, we did, but you know what? Honestly, I think uh, nobody asked us for anything, and I think that was the main thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. I think yeah. that was the main like nobody asked us for anything, and then we we got home. You know, Ellen and I were like, remember that thing with the bikes yeah. that they were talking about? Maybe we should offer. You know, and and honestly, this we're talking one hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, no, like, yeah, yeah, I'm teasing you, and I'm sure it was legit, but it was a good one. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting what you bring up. Uh, this this couple we met had been going to Hoi An a lot. And they said so many places have closed down, like rooftop bar, like places that were there for the Westerners. Mm-hmm. You know, Hoi An has really been impacted by the tourism. So lots of restaurants have closed down. Lots of places have. So they said it's it's changed a lot. It's wonderful now that things are picking up again. But but it really it has had a huge impact. So let's talk about your flight back really quick. And then we're going to jump to news. So you came back. Uh, did you fly Da Nang back or? Yes. So we did Da Nang to Hanoi on Vietnam Airways, and then uh, which was actually a 787 because of once or twice a day they have 787s uh, on Vietnam Airways. And then we picked up the JAL flight, which was uh, Hanoi to Tokyo to Chicago. Hey, and then Michael, we- sorry, stop beating on your microphone. <laughs> Okay. You're playing the gong show there while you're telling the story. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was I, I was doing something. This, yes. You're very excited. I just yes, I, in my ears. I'm thinking about this. Sorry. <laughs> and then we dropped the Chicago to JFK leg. And okay. <laughs> throw away ticketing? How dare you? <laughs> okay, we accidentally missed the Chicago to JFK flight. Jet, jet lag is really rough. I understand. You just need to book a new ticket home. It's, it happens sometimes. Yeah, and then and then we. Uh, decided to find Charlotte, you know, out of out of the goodness of your hearts. Exactly. <laughs> and this is where we made our other mistake. So originally when I was booking from Da Nang to Tokyo, I thought maybe we should leave five or six hours between the flights. And I mm-hmm. said that to Ellen and she's like, what are you crazy? What are we going to do for five or six hours in Hanoi airport? I was like, okay. <laughs> so Four Seasons gave us like a 5.30 at night check-in, a check-out. And we took like the 7.30 flight. And our flight uh, to Tokyo was at 11.30 at night. So we had like a two and a half hour connection, which was fine. But our Vietnam Airways flight had been delayed coming in. And now all of a sudden it dawned on me, you know, we're probably landing in Hanoi at like a domestic terminal and then have Mm -hmm. to get to the international terminal. Mm -hmm. So once again, I asked the people at Four Seasons, huge mistake, extremely helpful. But they're like, oh, it's really complicated and you're going to have to take a bus between those two terminals and you might not have enough time and it's going to be really crowded. Can we set up VIP services for you? (laughs) So I was like, okay. So I, so we chalked it up to the fact that we got to stay at the four seasons. till five 30, but once again, we got someone who met us at the terminal, literally took us outside the domestic terminal. He had a car double parked. I don't know how they do this there. We He put us in a car. He drove us over to the international terminal, you know, took us as quickly as possible to J- Japan Airlines first class check-in and then to the front of the security line and then to the lounge and then took a picture of us to show his boss and left us in the lounge. Uh, <laughs> wait, this, with you or just of you? Because if you had to like get a selfie with you in the lounge, that'd be kind of amazing. No, it isn't. It was just of us. So it's like he could say to his boss, I have delivered the I have delivered the Traegers to the VIP lounge. They're they're all set. It's like the it's like the DoorDash people who have to like take a picture of the order that they left at the door. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what it was. Literally I think we landed at the domestic terminal and we're in the lounge in like 40 minutes. 
like from one terminal to the other. It was so that's that's paid for. Well, maybe it was a little bit at that point. We did check a bag because we had bought so much stuff. We were checking bags on the way home, but you know what? I just, you know, I was like in that kind of mode where I said, okay, I thought two and a half hours was really a long amount of time. And then I was like, this flight's 1130 at night from, from Hanoi. And if we miss that flight, we're going to have to wait 24 hours to get the next, you know, Japan airlines flight. And that's going to be even more complicated. So, well, and that's, I mean, think about that though, right? If you had, you gotten stuck in Tokyo, like then you would have like, unless you wanted to clear, you know, into Tokyo, which you couldn't do, you're basically sleeping in the airport because you're stuck. I I don't know. I I think I get, I get your thinking, Michael. I, uh, and it is complicated, right? Had you not had a driver there getting to the domestic terminal from, or getting to the international terminal from the domestic terminal is not necessarily straightforward. And it is very, again, you're at night and it is chaotic because that's when all the Asia arrivals come in. So I, I don't fault you for paying for the service and, you know, you get your pictures, you know, The other thing is too, and and I mention this to people a lot. Say I say this was my third time doing this kind of shuffle, and I knew how the bus worked, and I knew all of that. It's different, and I think that's the biggest issue with like a lot of travel. I mean, even people who like never like travel through London Heathrow and know how to get from terminal to terminal. I mean, when you understand what your expectations are at an airport, it's totally different when it's a new situation, right? Like you forget that when you know how easy it is. And I'm going to throw out there. In this, the like sort of new COVID era of travel, until you've done it once or twice and are sure that the rules are the same, you know, past experience may not necessarily apply as you thought it will. Just yeah. having been through several airports and like, oh no, I've been to this one, I know where to go. Check, you know, clearing through Copenhagen, everything was more or less as I expected. There's some construction, but like came through immigration and the lounge was right where it was supposed to be. All the gates were where they were supposed to be. Like that one was okay. Some of the other airports I was in in the last couple of weeks in Europe, definitely a very different experience. So even what you knew may not still apply. So I just be careful. Be well, you know, that's a great thought. My first thought was to like go on flyer talk or to ask people like, do you think this is enough time for, you know how we all do yeah. like the group think? And you know what? I said, Michael, I'm not going to ask that because everybody's going to tell me 2016, 2018, 2019, yeah. which means nothing. Literally the only person that could have helped me is has anybody gone between the domestic to the international terminal in Hanoi in the last 30 days? And right. I figured in my social circle, even though people travel a lot, People were going to tell me about the way it used to be, which is not applicable. By the way, we did have to do security when we went from Hanoi to Tokyo, uh, connecting to our flight to Chicago. We did have to do security again on that Mm. one. So that was interesting. So there was no security landing from San Francisco and connecting to Hanoi. But connecting from Hanoi to the Chicago flight, we had to go through security. Yeah, I I mean, that's part of that's the U.S. rules. But I I am – that is interesting to me, Seth, because we've connected through – Narita quite a bit and yeah. it used to be you had to you went through security both ways right like I, entering. certainly long long time ago it was i thought i remembered something about u.s arrivals being considered clean uh that may yeah. have been in other countries that may have been like in france or something there, there have been efforts to do that in various mm. places um but i didn't rem- i don't i don't remember anything anymore so yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it changes right with right I mean, all this stuff changes so um all right michael let's talk about some news it's fascinating it was a fascinating trip it sounds like it was a great trip did your wife enjoy the 30th anniversary it was awesome we yeah. are we were so thrilled with the trip i mean it it was everything that we wanted and it was it was exotic it was relaxing my other thing and i'm telling people this all the time 
and a trip with one week at a beach resort. So hop around and do whatever else you want and spend a week at a beach resort. It is such a brilliant way to do it. We always would cut our trip short. I think, you know, even though we were in Hanoi for four days, I could see doing like Saigon for three or four days, then doing Hanoi, then maybe doing something else. But ending with that week in one place is wonderful. I would kill myself if I end up in a week at a beach resort. (laughs) (laughs) I, I... I have I can't stand sit still that long. I mean, I think you picked one and you highlighted that you did one that you're close enough to Hoi on that you had you weren't just at the beach resort. You had a base, but you did different exploration every day. But put me in, if you like put me on an isolated beach for a week, I would probably make it to day three or four. And then, and then either someone on the staff or I would be dead. And yeah, but remember, I spent two of my days were intense cooking classes because I did cooking yeah. academy, which yeah. was huge. Like that, that's fair. If you do other things and get out and explore, but also have beach available, that's different. I just the idea of sitting on an isolated beach freaks me out. Even with good Wi Fi, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, I I don't know. I think it's I think training ourselves to just relax is is something I've always had trouble doing, and I think you really start to relax when you're in one place. For a lot of days, but are you saying, Seth, that you do the opposite of relaxing? Like, I think I think Seth I think Seth's thing is it, doing nothing is not relaxing. Yeah, I can't just sit on the beach and like bake in the sun. I love getting a nice suntan, but I would like it to be while hiking or biking across France or and like listen, some time on the beach is nice, but I can't do that for a week. I <laughs> you could do yoga every morning. They've got this great, okay. They have this aerial yoga stuff, which I'm afraid to do. Like I ain't doing motorbikes or. It's what it looks like to me. I mean, have you yeah. done aerial yoga before? It seems. Well, I has. I haven't. T- she's on the aerial dance stuff. I haven't. Um, but no, that I'd be into. But all of those little things sound lovely. I just, I can't do it for a week straight without the other variety. And and it sounds like you had it here, but you know, your Bali or Ling whatever Lingwaki whatever Lingawi terrible. Uh, and being stuck isolated out there for a week, I would I would be very unhappy. Maldives overwater bungalow for a week, I is like my worst nightmare. But you know what? I'm with you, though. I don't want to go to the Maldives just for that reason that I mean, and people joke like, oh, you're bougie. You like fancy dining. I said, but I don't like fancy dining. I, I like at these good resorts. food, not fancy dining. There's a difference. But but what's also different about that is there's an angle to it. In other words, these beach resorts are well executed food, but it tends to be quite overpriced for the area, which is different than talking about yeah. what happens to be the best French restaurant in Vietnam and is the tw- one of the tw- it's in the top 20 fine dining restaurants in all of Asia is the French restaurant that they have at the yeah. JW Marriott. So that's much different than just spending a lot of money at a beach resort or in the Maldives because you're eating like I had foie gras pho. I thought that was amazing. <laughs> so foie fusion? Yeah. Yeah, but to me the idea of the Maldives is you're just paying a lot of money for decent I'm sure this stuff is decent. I'm sure when you pay all imported, nothing local, like or minimal local, it's But but Michael, what else are you gonna like post on your Instagram to make people think you're wealthier than you are? Oh, that's the other thing is and I have to do a side note for four seasons, they are really really doing the right thing with sustainability there is no there was pretty much i don't i can't say no plastic no plastic at all at the four seasons 
everything, like if you got a to-go cup for coffee, it was a paper cup with a paper lid. Uh, everything in your room, like the water bottles, because in Vietnam you are supposed to drink water, they would fill glass bottles and tag them so that you knew the bottle was tagged and then refill those glass bottles with you. So all the water bottles were glass. You, it was, they really did a great, a great job with that. The only problem is if you were going to go for the day or go for a hike and you want to fill your backpack, all of a sudden you've got all these glass bottles of water. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, it's, uh, they were doing, they did a really good job and they have their own farm which provides a huge amount of, of vegetables and other things for the resort. I mean, huge farm. So I, I was super impressed by all of that, but especially the no plastic, because the plastic drives me crazy at, at hotels and things like yeah. that. And I was just so happy not to see plastic. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Michael. Let's talk, let's talk some news, if you don't mind. Uh, that would be uh, some stuff that's happened, particularly a new suite on Virgin Atlantic. So this is interesting. The A330neo uh, interior was unveiled. Uh, Virgin Atlantic is going to have big business class cabin. Uh, it's a new one-to-one layout. Uh, decent sized premium economy cabin. Uh, economy with a is it delight, I think, is their extra live room product. And then regular seats. Uh, relatively nice looking, pretty standard, quite frankly, across the board. They've got a, they still have a lounge little area at the second boarding door uh, behind business class. Or I guess in the middle of business class, either way. Uh, but what's interesting about it is what the, they have what they're calling the retreat suite, which is sort of business class plus. And this is the center pair of seats at the bulkhead. Again, bulkheads offer an opportunity for extra legroom or a bigger TV screen or things like that because you're not worried about the footwell for the row behind you. And in the Virgin Atlantic case, they're doing they're actually going to sell them as a separate or upcharged product. I actually haven't seen how they're going to charge for it, but it's a longer bed, bigger screen. Uh, It will be the only seat that has the ottoman where someone can buckle in and join you for dining uh, on those planes. And I'm just like, you go back and think Air New Zealand, we talked about a couple weeks ago, is doing a similar business deluxe plus or plus deluxe, whatever. Lux is what they're calling theirs. (laughs) Uh, JetBlue has the studio with their front row where they had extra room to work with and they're charging up for it. It's really interesting to see the number of airlines that, didn't or don't have first class trying to do this sort of J plus option and try to eke some eke out a little more premium, a little more special from a regular business class offering. Well, what I think is so interesting about that is like you nailed it. Like you're not going to have first class or the airline doesn't have first class anymore, but you're able to supply that slightly more premium hard product. Have you been aware of any of these products that you mentioned though? The soft product always remains exactly the same, correct? Uh, exactly as tough. JetBlue, you get pajamas that you don't get in the rest of business class. Um, but otherwise, like the food and everything else is the same. So it is gen- I mean, not exactly the same, but it's generally, you're not getting a different set of dining or different set of booze or anything like that that a true first class would have. And the differential, you know, the catering cost differential and the complexities there, I can certainly understand airlines trying to not get into that. Now, how about the, when you look at the entire Virgin fleet, how many different forms of upper class do they have now? Because one of the things that gets me five is this, yeah, is this inconsistency of of yeah. different products out there, and we know some are not going to be retired for a long time, and how complicated it becomes to get the new shiny yeah. product. I mean, I also am just kind of amused, like for the longest time on their old three forties and whatnot, the 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 like sort of one 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 angled seats, the herringbone layout that they used to have on board uh, for the longest time was it had that 
you can sit, you can have someone come join you and sit in the little footwell space and mm-hmm. sit and dine with you. And that was, it was a tiny, narrow little space. You needed like very narrow hips to make it work, but you could do it and they advertised it. Um, and that basically went away when they moved to seats that were more comfortable and didn't require the flipping over to go to bed. And now they're sort of bringing it back with these uh, retreat suites. So that's just another silly little thing, I feel like. But but who's the market for this retreat suite? That always becomes so interesting to me. Like, who are the... Who's going to look at upper class and be like, oh, dang, I got to pay extra to have, like, the spot up front so me and my couple friends can play cards during the flight? And is it... But do they still have a bar in the back? It's uh, sort of. It's three seats or four seats plus four standing area with uh, just a small like bench basically and a self-service fridge which i have to assume means no alcohol self-service but um so i'm thinking like for this for this new product that you're talking about yeah so it could be good for some business travelers who are getting ready to go to a some kind of like big deal meeting and they wanted to all powwow about something in a space together that's semi-private yeah i can't think of a more terrible way to business travel but sure (laughs) <laughs> or yeah or it's like that kind of thing like a bunch of yeah. no, people I, who, I mean i, I always am like who is this for like who is right. it like who who is this aimed at you could say the same about q suites in some ways but at least in q suites everybody still has their own seat right the, the weird part about this is you basically have to buy four upper class tickets including two at the premium and then two of the other people have to leave their very large comfortable spacious area and come over and like wedge into a less padded ottoman with a giant, very warm television screen behind their head um, to enjoy dinner together. It's, but you know, maybe it's for tall people because it is a longer bed. It's six, seven or six, nine. I forget which six. Feet. I, w- I was going to say, it feels like to me, it's not, it's not necessarily about uh, let's market this to somebody else. It's, it's, it's a byproduct of the fact that, Hey, we put, we had to put in bulkhead seats right. because bulkheads exist. Um, now let's upsell this if we can. Yeah. Um, the, the CapEx to do a slightly different product is relatively low. It's a fun story. It got them a lot of publicity. We're talking about it. And, you know, we take this job very seriously. So we don't talk about the very important things. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and yeah, on the off chance someone's willing to pay a hundred bucks, like they get a hundred bucks for it. And if not, you know, they're not that. We, didn't, we were not out of any money. Yeah. 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 Like the one um, install expense. But, but like, this is a little anyways. bit, this is a throwback. Remember American Airlines on the DC 10s and TWA also did this too. They had something called dining in the round. And you could dine at a big round table that they could set up. And I believe that you went to that table to dine at, and it still had airline seats, but you also had your seat. Mm-hmm. I mean, but if you if you the look up deck, seven forty, the original seven forty seven upper deck lounge, right? Was yeah, but they also did it on the DC tens in the main deck. I mean, yeah. I think they had a. So I think it was the kind of thing where they could lock in a table and move the seats and you would have dining in the round. But somehow I have to imagine that you also had a regular seat because it would be very weird. (laughs) Think of a dining table for six people. Wouldn't it be weird to be sitting in that arrangement for the entire flight when you're done dining? Southwest did it. Southwest had the the, the, the four, the the six, the the party seats. Yeah. I used to do that all the time. Yeah. So maybe this is sort of like that, but I think you're right. I mean, it brings a lot of publicity and I think also there's that part of it, it. It makes aviation fun. It makes aviation cool. Right. And Virgin is cool. So at least I are, think are, are they okay. I was say, versions marketing is cool. The same way Southwest is always the cheapest because they marketed themselves that way. But I don't know. My brother took the version flight. He normally flies Delta. He went to London. He's like, wow, this plane is way glitzier than the Delta one I'm normally on. <laughs> he used that word. I was like, yeah, fair. I mean that their lounge in Heathrow is the, the probably the, the glitziest round lounge yeah. I've been yeah. in. 
<laughs> their um, lounge is very good, but the lounge at JFK is just okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the other piece of news before we get to our bonus topics for our Patreon subscribers is European aviation has kind of sort of collapsed this, this week, this past week, this summer, this summer. It's, it's been a, sh- it's like show. it's rotating. It's like it's rotating through airports. Yeah. There's a pretty consistent 10 who are like, who's going to be the topic of the internet today, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Heathrow um, added, like you mentioned earlier, Seth added daily passenger caps uh, for, through the end of the summer. Uh, and Emirates kind of had a hissy fit about this, right? I think Emirates legitimately pushed back and said, what do you mean you expect us to not allow people who previously purchased tickets to board? Cause you guys haven't bothered to staff up security and uh, ground handling. That's a legitimate question. I think uh, so this, you know, the little bit of backstory, uh, Heathrow capped at 100,000 passengers a day. Uh, the airport was scheduled for about 120 to 125,000. So, you know, like 20% cut and planes are mostly full and they can't just cancel flights because there's slot use rules. So it's a whole mess. They basically just want flights to operate at 75% capacity. Uh, Emirates rightfully said, we've already sold these tickets. What are you talking about? It's not our fault. You didn't staff up and we're not going to honor your request. Come <laughs> sue us. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll see you in court. And since then, there have been constructive conversations, and I've been told that Emirates will stop selling new tickets, but it's not going to offload people who are already booked. That's good news for them. Uh, yeah. For everybody. Uh, and that's actually the really hard part is, like, who's supposed to pay the compensation out to the passenger if they get if they have to have their flight canceled, right? Yeah. Like, also, airlines, you know, run a budget based on we expect to sell X number of seats last minute, so we price advanced tickets at a different number. All of a sudden, if they can't sell any of the last minute seats, like, their whole economics are thrown into chaos it's it's a terrible last minute idiocy because the airport couldn't get staffed on the flip side if people are going to wait in line for four hours and it's going to be fire code violations because you can't get them through the security checkpoints and they risk missing their flight anyways like that's also terrible yeah so do you think though like a little bit on the i mean by the way that emirates letter was so good it was great I, i mean really i suggest to anyone to to read the the actual letter and i also loved what they said about like what are we supposed to do you know these people where are we going to move these people there are yeah. no flights to move them to there's, this there's is no all- other flights to move them to and what you expect us we can just suddenly show a, a 380 to show up at another airport in the uk and get all the people there and get it staffed appropriately yeah <laughs> and and did you hear as a side note did you hear iceland air is putting baggage handlers on flights you're skipping ahead oh, i didn't see the notes but anyway, Michael isn't even looking at the notes and he actually knew our next topic this that's, is amazing. i mean that's fantastic okay uh, but here's the conspiracy theory though so we know there's a lot of controversy over management at heathrow but do we sort of think because not only is Heathrow melting down, but British Airways is pretty clearly melting down over the last month or two. Do you think these additional cuts sort of helped British Airways a little bit? Whereas like Emirates got their stuff together and was really planned for this, but British Airways hasn't really had their stuff together. So maybe this, I don't, I, I mean, is that a conspiracy theory? Is it, is it a little bit of legitimacy true. there? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, yeah. Just, just cause you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't really after you. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I would say to that, Michael, is I would believe it more if I thought uh, if they were allowed to cancel the flights and keep the slots, the slot rule uh, situation where they still have to run the flights. So, right, like part of British Airways' problem is it doesn't necessarily have enough staff to run all you know pilots and crew and ground handling and baggage check in and front desk and everything else, gate agents. Those things all do better if you can trim the number of flights, not just the number of passengers. And so that's the only, and which is why I think this approach is actually a terrible way to try to solve the problem also. But uh, that's the only thing I would say where I questioned a little bit. But yes, the if British Airways can come back and say, we have to cap our flights, we can't sell any more seats, and someone else is making us do it, at least they can justify it to their stockholders that way. 
Yeah. It's not going to help the passengers. Well, and how does it, how is it impacted by EC261? So, so if, though, is it, does it fall under EC261 or not because it's being forced to happen by... I believe, well, yeah, I tell you, if the cause of the canceled booking is external, I think they're okay, but it's still a terrible situation. So for the EC, just remind... Yeah, sorry, if you get your, if your flight is canceled or retimed less than two weeks out, you are due compensation as though it was, you know, under the normal rules, as opposed to, like, if, as if it was canceled on the day of travel, because under the presumption that you can't reasonably rebook within a two-week window. So so EC261 still applies to the UK, even though they're... Uh, Through the end of this year. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, that's good to know. Um, let's talk about Iceland Air and yes. sending their own bag of channelers to Amsterdam. So Amsterdam is another one of the airports that has been a terrible mess. I'm super excited for my trip there in October. Hope they've got things sorted out by then. It's gotten better from what I've seen. Eh, some um, days are better some than days others. Some days are better than others, yeah. Grab them a Michelob and we'll find out. Um, but yeah, no, Iceland Air started sending a couple baggage handlers on every turn. They basically fly them in as passengers, have them work, offload bags, load bags on, and then get back on the plane and fly home. Because one of the challenges was ground handling. Like they didn't have enough. And if they, you know, they were waiting basically for baggage handlers to show up and deal and work their flight, if they can send their own people and like get someone else to drive the cart of bags over. The part I don't understand is like the licensing and the security clearances and everything else of like, I'm authorized to work in Iceland. How does that let me work the ramp in? the netherlands but they well, seem EU, to have figured it out yeah i mean eu rules are i mean pretty i think straightforward on some of that right like there's like shared work permits but, what, I, i'm i'm yeah. more like this i'm more like the security side of it like how are they just like getting off the plane and walking down the stairs ramp, yeah the i would assume they're like they punch in a code and go down the <laughs> stairs to the ramp that's this, this is the whole thing i'm talking about like and also like how are the unions in the netherlands so, i mean i guess they're saying okay well these guys are unionized in iceland and getting paid reasonable wages so it's probably okay but you'd think the guy the crew in the netherlands would be like actually those should be our jobs we need more people here you can't come and just bring your own workers yeah i i don't know I, or you can i guess there's you can self-handle so um yeah. Well, there's a lot of questions there. And also the question is they're there to get the bags off the plane, but that's it, right? Right. Someone else has to presumably put – you put them on a a cart, but someone else has to drive that cart over to the main claim area. And similarly, someone's got to drive the cart of the bags that are coming back to Iceland over to the plane. So someone's involved. Maybe, though, they can get away with one local instead of needing five, and that helps. I don't know. Yeah, it's wild. Um, And then Delta is uh... (sighs) – has ferried the, their baggage out of Heathrow. So Delta had their earnings call last week and bizarrely sort of just slipped into the conversation. Ed Bash and the CEO slipped in. He's like, we've been super creative dealing with the delays and challenges in uh, Europe. We even fe- we even chartered a flight to move bags out one day. And everyone on you know the media covering the industry was like, the what with the huh? And of course, everybody simultaneously reached out for a comment. The company had a comment ready to go. So they knew this was going to happen. It was clearly somewhat uh, manipulative in the way they presented it. And the reality is they had a flight canceled because of the passenger caps and had to rebook a bunch of people off of a Detroit flight from Heathrow. And the flight was going home empty anyways. And so they put a thousand bags on it and then rerouted them once they got to Detroit. So, yes, (laughs) they did operate a flight just for baggage, but the plane was going to go home anyways. And it wasn't it's not really a charter. It wasn't a charter. charter. Yeah, I mean, so not quite as cool as they made it sound, but like creative use of, hey, guys, we got to fly this plane anyways. What are we going to do? Oh, hey, look, we have all these bags that we haven't been able to get on any of our other flights. Why don't we just get them on here? So uh, it, w- it was a good good use of whatever, but also not quite as cool as it did. Also, I'm, I'm impressed they managed to get a 1,000 bags in. 
Do you think they put them up? You think they put them up top? Nope. All in all in cargo, like containers, like normal. I was thinking I was I was impressed by that, too. But I keep thinking and I don't know if anyone's brought this up or you've brought this up as a topic. You know how everyone has like travel insurance through their credit cards or has Mm -hmm. secondary travel insurance policy, which has all these baggage policies. Well, I've got to assume that all these insurance companies have some actuarial model about the number of bags that get lost per year or delayed and how much they have to pay out. And this has totally probably turned that upside down. Like they're probably like, oh my God, we have never had so many baggage yeah. claims ever before. Yeah. So I sort of wonder who's going to pay for that. Like, yeah. is it going to increase insurance for everyone? Are they going to start to put like incredible limits on our credit card baggage insurance because they paid out so much this year? I don't know. I mean, I, I made a similar comment last summer or late last year when the airlines started blaming weather for every meltdown they had. And like, okay, weather screwed you on Thursday, but that doesn't explain why Sunday you haven't gotten your shit back together. And, but as long as if they cancel you for weather and people have insurance, my comment was like, when are the insurance companies going to go back to the airline and be like, no, you can't throw this at us anymore. Mm. Like you're lying. This is not really a weather problem. You have to pay these claims, not us Mm. and fight it out. So I I don't know that there's necessarily uh, a process that would allow that to happen, but yeah, it's a weird insurance is the insurance angle of it is super weird. And, a whole lot of other people are going to fight about it with lawyers and make more money than me. So one way or the other, I don't care. <laughs> oh man. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the show. We'll have a, a few bonus topics, uh, including some Cape town slot continuance, uh, for you, Patreon subscribers, but, uh, just wanted to thank Michael Traeger of travels Orc uh, for joining us, Michael, thank you. And, uh, people can find you at travelsorc.com. and, uh, anything else you want to add? No, uh, it was it was great being on. And you can, yes, you can find me at TravelsWork.com, at TravelsWork on all the socials, and TravelsWorkTravel.com if you want to book a luxury vacation. There you go. Thank you uh, again, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks. Take care.